Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. At a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Hello and welcome to Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, your host, and I'm really excited to have my guest today here, uh, Robert Sandelius. And uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, make sure I pronounced your name correctly. It's, uh, it didn't make any errors on the front end. No, you did great. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so Robert, you and I met uh, through some intermediaries, uh, but I want the audience to get to know you a little bit. Um, so tell me a little bit about kind of how you got to where you are today, your, your educational background, your professional background, and, and what you're focused on at the moment. Sure. Uh, 20 plus years in the health industry sector, uh, educational background, uh, bachelor's psychology and sociology, a master's in business administration. Um, in healthcare, I filled primarily C-suite roles, chief administrative officer, chief operating officer, and chief executive officer. I've worked in multiple and varied models of healthcare, everything from independent physician-owned networks to regional community health systems to founder startups, and then most recently, the largest nonprofit health system in the United States, Ascension Health. Very good. My love is healthcare, and it's my passion. So you've got a very broad perspective on the industry. I, I like to say that you've touched the elephant from a lot of different uh, perspectives. Uh, have you been able, in, in your estimation, have you been able to cobble together a holistic view of the industry, if that's possible for such a huge industry? You know, first and foremost, to me, uh, in that view would be the foundational uh, realization that we have exceptionally talented individuals at all levels of this industry, and I continue to be humbled and impressed by them day in and day out. Uh, that would be number one. Number two is I see it as an industry of continued experimentation. We, we have an industry that is truly striving on a number of fronts to continuously improve, uh, whether that's governmental, whether it's public, uh, whether it's private, whether it's venture capital, private equity, um, everything we know about the industry today will be different in six months and different again six months later. So continuous change. And then third for me, uh, from my perspective, is we still have not figured it out. We, we all experience the pain of continued chronic disease trending, medical bankruptcies, the, the difficulty in navigating the infrastructure, provider burnout, and I could go on and on. So uh, even though we have really, really talented people and we have tremendous investment and we have continued experimentation, we still are at a place where we can do better. So I completely agree with you on, on all of those points. And uh, one of the things I'd like to underscore is I've never seen an industry more uh, where, the, where the, the people in that industry were more passionate or mission-driven than the healthcare industry. And I've seen a lot of industries, but I've just been consistently impressed by how mission-oriented, whether it's a public hospital, a for-profit hospital, or not-for-profit hospital, 
uh, how, how mission-oriented people are, which kind of underscores some of the challenges we have with business models in the industry, which seem to get in the way of those missions being uh, executed properly. So what's your observation around, around that? You know, first I resonate with mission orientation. You know, an interesting story, in my role at Ascension, I was tapped on the shoulder to be co-incident commander for the Ascension Michigan response to COVID. That's 16 hospitals, 28,000 team members, 400 outpatient sites across the entire state of Michigan. I found myself in a studio apartment in downtown Detroit for 40 days, running an incident command response 24 seven with an amazing group of individuals. And I recall one of the most poignant experiences is every Wednesday in that first COVID curve, we would do a remembrance service of nurses, physicians, medical students, support staff who had passed away in the last week. Uh, and I've never been more impressed by the mission orientation and the intrinsic commitment to do good for the right reasons. So I, I resonate with mission orientation. I also resonate with the reality that we have a number of efforts in the health industry sector that, in my opinion, um, diminish human relationship and diminish the, the sacred relationship of caregiver with patient. Uh, we tend to use technology as a strategy. It is not. Technology uh, allows a strategy to come to fruition and, and maybe support it. Um, but if our technology is diminishing relationship and di diminishing connection, I think it creates too, too much thin space and really diminishes our opportunity. Uh, when we have venture capital investments like we've had in the last two years, private equity in, in the hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, we're looking at specific disease states and, and impacting those disease states. We continue to build siloed approaches that create a fragmentation in, in the industry. And in my opinion, that truly gets in the way of longitudinal care that has a very strong primary care stewardship to it. I you know, again, I think we're we're spot on with the the perspectives we have. I think that's I couldn't agree with you more. Um, now you mentioned technology as a strategy, but you also mentioned um, the intervention uh, between the the caregiver and the patient. I see that happening uh, not only with technology but also the business models. You know, when I I for example, I would assert that. When, when you have somebody else paying for the service that you're getting, then that it disintermediates the patient from the provider. And that impacts things that range from information flow to understanding what the price or the cost is to uh, understanding what needs might be and, and what protocols would include. And I don't know how we resolve that, but I just do, I do, well, I, do have some ideas on that, but I, I don't know if that's going to be resolved soon because of the vested interests. Uh, tell me what you're focused on now. Uh, I, it's an interesting process and an interesting project. I, I've spent 20 plus years um, I, in, in what I describe to be as the, the inside edge of the outside of healthcare. Um, I, I am very innovative, entrepreneurial. 
I had an opportunity in this journey to spend 10 plus years consulting across the United States with ideation innovation centers housed within health systems with founders, startup uh, organizations, even VC-backed entities. My current passion is very simply described as helping us move from a sick care legacy structure to a healthcare structure. Uh, we truly have a system that is reactive and a system that is sick care oriented. And we are investing significant resource in addressing uh, illness, societal pain, disease, and we're not moving the needle. Uh, I'm very interested in working with many others uh, in truly creating a true healthcare ecosystem that begins to impact the reduction of sickness and the reduction of illness in successive generations. So that's that's currently the project I'm working on uh, and, and currently uh, what I'm developing with a broader group of individuals. So how do you do that? I mean, obviously you're, again, you know, absolutely correct. One of the things that I point out, I, I mentioned this in my book in many instances, is that you know, the way to get healthy is to do what your mom told you when you're growing up, right? Eat right, sleep right, and go out and play. Uh, but but I've done the research and doctors are, are taught very little, mm -hmm. if at all, about basic nutrition, basic sleep, or basic exercise. The only thing that they're interested in, that the educational system provides them with regard to, to exercise is when things break, right? When your joints wear out and, and what right. were the causes of that? And how do you solve for the, the erosion of the quality of the functionality of the joint? So how do, how do we get back to this position where we're actually making, uh, where, we're act, where we actually have a true healthcare or well-being or well-care industry versus a sick care industry? Yeah, I think there are four foundational uh, you know, cornerstones or ingredients, if you were. Uh, one of those is, is increasing personal health literacy in a measurable fashion. So it's an investment, very specific investment, leveraging social science, cognitive computing, leveraging uh, all of the toolkits available to us to measurably improve personal health literacy and starting in younger generations. That's number one. Number two for me would be uh, measurably strengthening personal health agency. So how do I know how my choices impact me and impact my community and impact my broader society? So what are the implications of me smoking a pack of cigarettes a day? What are the implications of my diet? What are the implications of my sedentary lifestyle? And how will that impact me in five years, 10 years, and 15 years? And how might it impact or add burden to my community, my family, and the people around me? So first it's personal health literacy, then it's personal health agency. I am the person most responsible for my healthcare journey and ensuring that that healthcare journey is positive. The third for me would be creating a system that rewards and incentivizes healthy choices 
in a way that gives me valuable and spendable health equity. So my ability over time, longer rhythms, weeks, months, years, in making healthy choices to be rewarded for that or incentivized for that and gain valuable and spendable health equity. The fourth then is the ability to share that health equity or to invest it in impacting community health, individual health, or even on my own prevention and well-being journey. So if I'm building health equity and I'm doing it in a varied way, why can't I use that for a dental visit, an optical visit? Why can't I use it to buy healthy food? Why can't I use it for sports and recreation? That's a healthy impact on me. So those are the four foundational ingredients that I think are critical in creating a sustainable and, and impactful health ecosystem. So let's run through those again, if we may. We have health, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, health literacy. Right. Health equity. Personal health agency, health like agency. my own. Yep. The third then would be valuable and spendable health equity. And then the fourth would be the ability to share that health equity through various channels to impact both myself and others. So when you, I want to uh, take them a little bit of, out of order on the health equity. When you first use those terms, what registers for me is fairness. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't want to confuse that with uh a financial term like finance, like uh, invested capital. So which 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 context are you using that in? If you think of a Venn diagram, there'd be an overlap. So there there is an implication of fairness to this. So if I am a 17-year-old teenager who's had an accident and I spend the rest of my life in a wheelchair, what does it mean for me to be healthy? And what are the biomarkers of my health? And how do I ensure that I'm having the healthiest journey as possible? That may look very different than a 23-year-old female who's about to go to the Olympics, has had an amazing journey with health and well-being, and has very few challenges from an injury, sickness, illness standpoint. And how do we measure the health score of that person versus the individual in the wheelchair? So there, there is a, a, a implication of health equity and the appropriate measurement of a high health score for different models of health. That's one perspective. The second perspective is I'm actually creating an economic incentive by my choices. So if I choose healthy activity, uh, if I choose uh, smoking reduction or cessation, if I choose to lose 25 pounds, if I choose to invest in specific activities, we, we see this now sprinkled in the industry. We see people getting reductions on their insurance premiums through an employer if they stop smoking. We see individuals being rewarded for other activity. So I'm also building an economic account that moves with me through this ecosystem that I can use in, in what was historically siloed industries or sectors. So I see both applicable. And then to your point, I mean, this would be a, or, or, uh, be analogous perhaps, or include, both could be outcomes, uh, the notion of an HSA. 
Correct. Right. But it, but you could do it other ways as well. That and a health savings account is not the only way you could do that, but you could share it through other vehicles as well. Um, okay. And so I that that's it's very interesting that you described a different health score or different health outcome as being healthy based on the circumstances of the individual. So that that underscores the notion that health is relative uh, mm. based on on circumstance. Um, but the second piece of that is also that health is, while relative, it's not necessarily uh, irretractably predetermined. In other words, you have control right. and I, to use your word agency over your own health. You, you do. And I, you know, this is oversimplified, but think of a graph where you have a certain group of individuals on the tail of that graph. And no matter what they do in life based on their DNA, forgive me for this, but they're screwed, right? They, they're they're, they're going to die of a heart attack. Something's going to happen. They're going to get a genetic disease. Those individuals are, are really going to wrestle. On the other end of that graph, you also have people with DNA that they can drink a six pack a, a week, smoke a pack of cigarettes. They're going to live till they're 99. It's, it's just going to happen. We have people on that end of the graph. Then we have everyone in the middle. That's the group that I think it, we really need to pay attention to. Those are the individuals through influence, through learning, through personal accountability, through incentive, through community, can modify their personal health journey by daily micro choices that add up over time. That's the critical piece. Very good. And so let's go back to uh, number one. Hmm. Personal health literacy. That's a multi-generational initiative, right? In other words, if we consider that uh, First of all, the education itself will change because the information will be updated by the benefit of the empirical method and the, you know, and the like. Um, but many things that we take for granted today uh, were not even considered to be, you know, real, real trustworthy, you know, five, 10, 20 years ago. In fact, it was really funny. This is going to sound like an unrelated comment but I was listening to uh, CNBC the other day, and one of the commentators was expressing great frustration with a guest over the issue of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Mm -hmm. And his fear was that people would believe in something that was factually untrue. Is, is that okay with you? I mean, he's very, very uh, forward about this. Is that okay with you that people are going to believe in something that's factually untrue? And my reaction was, when in human history has that not been the case? <laughs> why, why are you talking right. about this, this now right. that in the 21st century when it's been the case at every single day, for every single day in, in the history of humankind? Mm. What on earth are you thinking about? And but the, but the outrage being expressed by this commentator uh, that somebody would actually believe in something factually untrue. You know, I go back to 
we had doctors advocating smoking in the 30s, 40s, right. and 50s, right? Right. Now, I mean, and and one of the things that's, that I'm really scared about, um, genuinely, is there's a bill pending in California right now, you may have heard of this, which uh, would cause the doctor to potentially be charged with a felony if they did not observe and follow the standard of care. Well, standard mm -hmm. of care, standards of care change. That means right. in the 40s and 50s, the standard of care would be, yeah, here, smoke a cigarette. Right. And right. so that would pretty much in, in, enshrine a standard of care today that couldn't be overturned for really forever. Because if you advocated something different, you'd be a heretic. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with that specific law, but it, we all know that that medical students graduating medical school today will find that the vast majority of the information that they learned is going to be dramatically different in a period of 18 months yeah. uh, at the outset. It moves so dramatically. I mean, it, we all seen the pictures of the physicians hanging people upside down in the Middle Ages and bleeding them because it was healthy for them, right? Yeah. Or, or in the 60s and 70s, we would kill mosquitoes with fuel oil by spraying it in the ditches along the roads. I mean, we, we do crazy things. However, I believe that we have a baseline of fundamental knowledge and scientifically based information that will not change. Right? That has to do with movement. I, well, to be clear, I completely agree with you. What troubles me, and this happened, well, actually, I actually, I came across it this week. I, I can send you the link. And in fact, I can post the link down below for audience members who want to look at it. The American Medical Association has now come out with a recommendation that the gender of a baby not be placed on its birth certificate. Hmm. Because they say that gender is is a fluid issue, and I, I'm I'm aston genuinely astonished that the American Medical Association would come out with such a a comment. And if that's the case, how do we how do we anchor ourselves on a reality? I mean, when when the American Medical Association is saying that we can't trust the gender of a baby born and such that we can place that gender on the on a birth certificate what on earth can we take as an objective truth yeah it's 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 a difficult question to wrestle with i, I wasn't aware that the ama came out with that statement um, and and it is a bit surprising uh, from my perspective uh, i'm interested in emphasizing what we do know and what we can leverage um, what we do know and what we can leverage can impact generations, starting with teens, 20s, 30s, um, to help them navigate their health and well-being journey in a way that truly impacts human flourishing. If, and, and this is not, we're, we're not going to live forever, right? I'm not one of those utopia people that say, we're, we're going to do away with all illness, we're all going to live forever. I'm very interested in changing just a few percentage points. If we take those people in their 15s, 20s, and 25s today, 
and over the next 10 to 20 years, reduce the level of heart disease, obesity, and diabetes. Just those three by two or three percentage points. Oh, it's a, ga it's a game changer. It's a game changer, yeah. right? So I, I, I'm very interested in staying laser focused on creating a true health and well-being ecosystem that stewards that journey with those demographics and those cohorts to create a different trajectory over that 10,000 mile journey, because we're going to end up in a very different place. And I, and I agree with all that, but, but the concern I have with today's culture is that is the belief that there is no such thing as an objective truth. And so when you say, when we talk about even the most basic things, like, you know, what is the, what is the gender of the baby that has just been delivered? And that comes, that's being called into question. And how can you, and, and, you know, let's pour us out of that and go to something like nutrition. Okay. In the eighties, Dr. Robert Haas came out with this. He was advocating a high carb, low fat, low protein diet. And all these professional athletes started using that diet to, and then claiming that they had the, the blood chemistry of a, of a 12 year old. Okay, and then it became hey, everybody's now going to paleo or keto or whatever else. And so the standardization on something as simple as nutrition has become difficult because there's so many different theories on it, um, notwithstanding what you know, levels of exercise or, my, or the, level, the level of sleep or the environment you're in might factor into that. How do you, how do you find the things then that, quote, everybody can agree on? You know, I don't think you'll ever find the things that everybody can agree on. Whether whether you're in the the finance fintech industry, you're going to have experts saying leverage debt as much as you can, invest in real estate, you're going to be a millionaire. You're going to have people uh, on the other side of that spectrum saying avoid debt as as much as you can. Um, in fact, they even put an ethical implication to both ends of that spectrum, right? We, we see it in every industry sector. We see it in every area of politics, science, ethics. We will never get everyone to agree on everything. I believe what's critical and what I see lacking in our journey is creating a space of grace, civility, honest discourse, with the intent of truly hearing the other side and seeking to understand, and then seeking to find common ground for the next best step forward. You but know, the me, best example of, of what you might say would be a, a basic item that would be uh, a starting point for health literacy. What would, what would be a, an example? Yeah, movement, movement. It's very simple, uh, but, how much should I move per day and per week? Uh, and why? And and that data and that science is basic and available. And no matter who you are, it's it's relatively shared. So whether you're the United Nations, the World Health Organization, the AMA, wh whether you're someone who's uh, a, a vegetarian or someone who eats beef 10 times a week, uh, general understanding that the more I move and how I use movement in my daily rhythm, 
will lead to a better state of health and well-being. That's that's one common area I think we can get some consensus on. Another would be nutrition, general nutrition. Like if I bias, right, to more natural, organic, plant-based, and I have a, a rhythm of those general areas of nutrition, and I combine that with movement, and I find that I'm moving in my daily micro choices in that direction. And I do that over days and weeks and months and years and decades, I will create a very different outcome than if I don't. Completely agree with the movement piece. And that's kind of like my version of play. Uh, mm -hmm. But on the, on the nutrition piece, I think that's interesting because I, I would assert, for the sake of expanding the, the debate on this point uh, or challenging you a little bit, uh, the, you, one could argue you have biases built into that when you say uh, plant-based, um, organic, right? Those terms aren't really well-defined by anybody. Uh, and so it causes one to believe that, you know, you can read the labels and be comfortable with that, uh, which we, we all know we can't. But uh, but I understand directionally where you're going, and I think that makes sense. How do you deal with um, levels of or where does the literacy end for you? In other words, how do you get to a place where you're comfortable? Because I think that the goal is critical. I I'm 100% supportive of the goal, and I would actually assert um, more forcefully that you just select you get to select you're you're the you're the uh, pointing into the spear here therefore you are the driver of this therefore you get to select what you think is uh the thing that uh is essential for a health for health literacy to occur and if you take eat right sleep right and go out and play which is you know a certain diet or leaning towards a, uh, a tendency towards a certain diet movement, as you describe mm -hmm. it, et cetera, that you get to select whatever those things are because, you know, you're the guy that's leading the charge. But I think at the other day, the, the thing that I worry about is it, you can be arrested in your embrace of this by focusing on largely irrelevant details. Does it really matter if it's uh, if you're eating a chicken breast and it is not a grass or I don't even know what you call it, uh, you know, not a plant based chicken or it's not. And that's I'm sure that's wrong, but uh, not an organic chicken. Right. Right. The most important thing is that you eat chicken as opposed to, you know, pounding down 27 ounces of, of steak at every meal. Right. No. Well, well said. I mean, you, you could go down so many rabbit trails and get lost in the weeds and, and fine cut these things. Um, I, I believe that there are general directional guidelines that, that truly will create very positive outcomes for generations and populations. And, and for me, I, I also think it's critical to actually start. So we, we can spend so much time dialoguing and debating and, and, you know, the best time to plant a tree, right? 20 years ago and today. 
So it's what are we truly doing for a population? And I, I think about my daughter who's 22. I think about my son who's 27. And I think about what is the system that they will inherit in 10 years or 20 years. And I'm very interested in, in a journey that, that sometimes I use descriptors that kind of turn people off a little bit. It's slow, it's unglamorous, and it's lifelong. It's, it's like planting an orchard or planting a vineyard. It, it's really slow work. And, and I'm in no way prescribing that we're, we're going to be a, a unicorn in 48 months because we're going to build something amazing. It, it will take iteration, experimentation. It will take handing off leadership. And it will take handing through generations the evolution of this ecosystem to truly bear fruit for both the current and future generations. It's not an easy work. And, and I agree with you that, that it also requires collaboration. I mean, you, you need the best thinkers, right? In network theory, in science, in leveraging our technology, in, in looking at social physics and how people are influenced. All of those things are critical and re will require a significant broad input and influence. So I, I I think you're you're correct. It is uh, slow work. It is unglamorous and it is lifelong, <laughs> which of course makes all of us want to just leap in with both feet, right? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like saying, yeah, yeah next thing I want to do is be an accountant. Um, right. But uh, I think you're you're absolutely correct, and that's why I said it's a multi generational effort uh, that that takes a lot of time. And I I guess the the other challenge with is um, the four planks you put out there make a lot of sense. How do we get business models to support that? How do we get, how, how do we find or trans, transfer today's stakeholders or, or translate today's stakeholders into tomorrow's stakeholders into the ecosystem you've described? Right. I, I truly think it has to be from the outside in. So if you think of our current sick care infrastructure and systems, um, I honestly believe that they are not resourced, they are not structured, and they do not have the capacity to lead this charge and to truly invest in it. So when I look at top leading brands in the United States and just pick an industry, and, and you would think, well, what does that have to do with healthcare? But if you look at fintech, you look at a company like SoFi or, or another company, if you look at retail, a company like Nike, if you look at transportation, Uber and Lyft, right? You look at entertainment, um, all of these industry sectors have resources and opportunity to join a journey in ways that we've not yet currently integrated to both educate, resource, and incentivize health and well-being. And, and we have the capability to link with those industries, in my opinion, and, and I know people will disagree with me, I absolutely believe this venture needs to be not for profit. The only shareholder that I wanna be accountable to is current and future generations. And I believe a not-for-profit model 
will help us truly be creative, uniquely integrated, and allow incentive to for-profit in industry to participate in a way that will truly create value for them, as well as the individuals and communities in this ecosystem. So it truly is a transformation across industry and across sectors that historically have been disparate, siloed, and honestly at odds with each other. What's every employer's number one complaint and number one expense, right? It's personnel. And beyond that, it's the healthcare cost of those personnel. And there's a way we can change that over longer rhythms of time. So there's a lot to unpack there, but one of the things that springs to mind is that there was a recent initiative by three large companies, uh, I would say JP Morgan, Berkshire, and Amazon. Right. And that that failed with thunderously. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, and, and so to me, I look at that and say, well, uh, those three organizations with assets under management measured in trillions of dollars and annual revenues measured in hundreds of billions of dollars, if they if they can't tackle it, um, and, and that they are certainly outsiders, uh, how how else do we get it tackled properly? Yeah, if you if you read Atul Gawande and and you listen to him and you 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 hear him describe his journey, and even if you listen to leaders at those three organizations, um, when you're moving from a legacy organizational structure and moving into an ecosystem, there is management and leadership theory about how we need to abdicate our personal agenda and how we need to look at a collaborative agenda of what we want this outcome to be apart from our individual benefit. Uh, when when you look at J.P. Morgan, you look at Amazon, you look at uh, Hathaway, those organizations truly had an interest in driving down healthcare costs in their employed entities, and at the same time trying to prove something that may make a difference. They focused on the development of a primary care base, and that focus was reactive sick care. It it truly was being reactive to symptomatic care and trying to rearrange that in a way that would drive down the cost as an employer. It's not going to work. We, we have really smart people doing a lot of things with a lot of money and it's not going to work. But that's, that, isn't that amazing to you that somebody with, with the resources of those three organizations collectively would make such a, a misstep I mean, that, that to me just doesn't make any walking around sense. How can you not understand that's never going to work? Well, it, it's not amazing to me. But, you know, I don't throw stones because I live in a glass house, right? Um, and it's amazing to me sometimes what I think is right. And, and I get people to influence and impact me. And I, I learn a different way. I, that, that's why I think a, a posture of humility, a posture of experimentation, a posture of longer rhythms, and the ability to work in a true ecosystem where you are not attempting to benefit a shareholder through a for-profit entity. What you're attempting to do is create a sustainable system that has an economic engine associated with it 
that moves the needle on health and well-being over generational periods of time. But the problem it's a with that very is different that, approach. The problem with that is that I, I think where I get hung up on is I don't know that it needs to be a for-profit or a not-for-profit, but the assumption is that somehow not-for-profits have a, have a nobler purpose or a more no, more noble business model. When the reality is, I don't believe that to be the case. And when you look at some of these nonprofits, what's happened is that their the compensation going to senior executives is disproportionately high because they don't have shareholders. And so, if you look at, for example, the compensation for the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield, it's staggeringly high, right? And and to be fair, that CEO is managing a big, complicated organization, so I don't begrudge that. But to say that um, that the not-for-profits don't make money is misleading because they, all they do is they don't pay taxes. The not-for-profits just don't have shareholders. But um, the running joke in healthcare is that everybody makes money. Some people just don't pay taxes. And so the the tax benefits to particularly private hospitals that are not-for-profits is you know, are, are immense. And yeah. and the the obligation to provide indigent care as a function of that uh, not-for-profit status is usually wildly underperformed. And so there's a problem there, both in incentives and, and all, otherwise. I would actually assert that um, the focus need, may need to be a little bit different. I like everything you're saying, uh, but I think that the challenge is that it, I don't focus, all right, and I don't hear you saying, oh, I'm sorry, I heard you say, you want to lower the cost of healthcare, and let me push back on that. I don't think, I don't think cost is the issue. I think it's price. So cost I, 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 yeah, I think it's I think it's both. And and when I say cost of healthcare, I mean cost of sick care, right? I want to lower the cost, the burden, the overall burden of illness. And I think there are perverse incentives and perverse structures in our current sick care system. A good example of that, if you look at the annual PNL of the largest health systems in the United States, the sick care systems, you'll see the largest systems hemorrhaging, billion dollar plus losses. Yeah. Name them, name them, name them, right? Look at the same PNL of the leading insurance companies in the United States and see what their annual PNL says, exactly flip-flopped, billion dollar plus profits. So I, I, I in no way say that a for-profit should not make money. Um, I, whoever makes that statement doesn't have a really understanding of what a for-profit is. It, a right. for-profit makes money it's what they're supposed to do with that money and who is supposed to benefit from it. Inure to the benefit of society, right? Community, as opposed to an individual or a corporate shareholder. So I, I absolutely agree with you that there is waste in our system. There are perverse incentives in our system that absolutely must be fixed. This is critical. However, it's not sufficient. If we fix all of that and we still have trending in chronic disease, we still have trending in obesity, we still have trending in the societal burden 
of these sick care trends, we are still going to be bearing a burden that we shouldn't be bearing. And we're still going to be wrestling with complexities that we don't need to. You're, you're, I completely agree with you and you're spot on. I, I think the question is, I consider, you know, one person's price or one, one price is another person's cost, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, but I focus on price because price is subject to downward pressure based on market conditions. And so if, if we can compete and have more uh, market pressures causing price to go down, then it's more affordable to everybody. And so I get hung up on the, the first problem is, is the metrics we're using. Mm. The metrics we're using are how many people are insured. Well, why do people need insurance? People need insurance because it's too expensive. Well, why don't we focus on making it less expensive? Why don't we focus on reducing price instead of, instead of increasing insurance, mm. which then allows price to go up because there's an insurance product for it. Um, so I think that uh, we have to include business models into the equation because I think your goals are, are both noble and correct. We just have, I, I think the one thing I would encourage you to consider is how do we get business models to support the goals that you're advocating, which then leads me to my next question, which is, how are you doing? Are you doing this in the context of a company or a personal mission or are reading books and, and op-ed pieces or how are you, how are you making, how are you leading the charge? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you I'm two years downstream and it, it's all structured and organized. It's, it's fascinating to me. I, you know, about two months ago, eight weeks ago, I authored a piece that I put out in the cyberspace through a couple channels and the outpouring has been amazing. I, I've been on probably five to seven calls per week with individuals nationally and globally around this concept of moving from sick care to healthcare. It, you know, from India to Scotland to Ireland to Greece, the World Health Organization, United Nations, thought leaders in the U.S. And, and there's a compelling resonance with, yes, you are correct. And it's not just in the U.S. I mean, we look at the national you know, health organization in the U.K. We look at what's happening in, in Singapore, the changes that they're making. We look at what's happening in Greece and what they're trying to accomplish. We, we all have similar trend lines. So my initial work process right now is creating a steering committee, an organized group of thought leaders with really four very concrete objectives. The first is to create content and amplify the messaging around the very real need to move from sick care to healthcare. That can be authoring through channels. We're gonna be creating conferences around this. We're gonna have regional thought leader groups and discussions, but it's amplifying content. The second is to, uh, really address the research. Like, what do we know about this already and what research exists that people are using or that we've just ignored and put on the shelf? And then what do we wish we knew about this journey of health and well-being and, and structuring research around it? The third objective is resourcing. So how do we find those organizations that are vested in this journey? 
that are willing to step up and say, I want to participate and I'll do that in kind and I'll do that through cash. And then the fourth is beginning a very small group of two to three very concrete and structured experiments that are building or creating at street level experiments in this ecosystem at a very specific structured cohort and focused user group. So it's those four objectives with the steering committee that is just beginning to form and the journey's just getting underway. So let's imagine that one of our audience members wants to support you. How would they do that? Um, I, I would say reach out directly. We'll talk. Uh, we'll figure out how to plug you in. Um, the other thing I would say is follow the journey. Um, you can do that by looking at my LinkedIn, looking at content, looking at other folks who are joining and following this journey. I think the most important thing that individuals can do is to ask themselves this question. Do we have health care or do we have sick care? And how I answer that question, what can I personally do to take a step in the direction of healthcare and how do I influence that right where I'm at? I'll give you an example. Um, I'm not gonna use the name of my primary care physician, but I go once every 12 or 18 months, says, how are you? It's a 15 minute appointment, sometimes 12 minute appointment. Um, the in-between space is silence. Right. And I know that I will address that primary care physician when I feel a lump, when I start feeling dizzy, when I got something going on. It, it's, it's taking that personal agency. I am responsible for this journey. And how do I influence the system where I interact with it to move from sick care to true health care? So those are the three ways that I would recommend that folks step in and get involved. That's excellent. Well, that call to action is important. And uh, I think it's a good opportunity for us to close with a call to action. And uh, we'll put your details in the bottom uh, of the uh, captioning here so that people can follow along. And, and even if they're just interested in following you, uh, they can do that as well. Uh, I think you're you're doing important work and I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing it. I think it's really uh, helpful for everybody. Um, I'm, I'm giving a talk in Houston in January, and my talk is going to be what you can do for your family, your business, and your country. Uh, your, your talk could be exactly the wow. same, right? So, right. Uh, and I, I, I fully support that. So thank you so much for your time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I hope to have an opportunity to circle back to you in, in a, over a period of time and, and check in and monitor your, your progress. And hopefully people who are listening to this will, will get engaged in, in the way that you would hope. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yep. As always, if you like uh, the content, please like, share, and subscribe. And as we rely on your support for this publication and, and uh, we enjoy engaging with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.